This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, how the crown went from prestige drama to TV disaster. What happened when one man's boat sank in the dead of night and he had to save his seven-year-old son? Middle Isle Mayhem, how Aldi and Lidl changed British shoppers. And finally, we hear from Philippa Perry, as she shares her advice on how to overcome loneliness and isolation. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly ebay gets it so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch stitch sole and logo is checked by experts with ebay authenticity guarantee you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach ensure your next purchase is the real deal visit ebay.com for terms now It was once a stately piece of landmark TV, but seven years on, The Crown is a trashy, unwittingly comical melodrama that borders on the exploitative. How did things get so bad? asks Michael Hogan. Read by Laura Shavin. Prime Ministers have called it malicious nonsense and complete rubbish. Theatrical dames have criticised it as crude sensationalism. And now the notices for the new season are in, they don't make pretty reading either. The Guardian's Lucy Mangan found it so excruciating to watch whilst delivering her one-star verdict that she felt like she was having an out-of-body experience. Other critics have called it clumsy and crass, ill-judged and outrageous, pointless and sad, a disappointing new low, a very pretty bore. Let's call them mixed reviews, shall we? Somehow, The Crown, that everyday story of blue-blooded folk, has become the most divisive drama on TV. Forget Euphoria's druggy orgies or the idol's horrendous misogyny, the real shocker on our screens is a family of billionaire toffs gazing mournfully out of palace windows and clapping politely at polo matches. The Crown's controversy-bait status has been a gathering storm. When Peter Morgan's regal saga first swept onto Netflix in 2016, it was lavishly produced and largely non-problematic. 
Most viewers had no memory of the post-war events it dramatised. The debut run covered 1947 to 1955, like totally olden times, nor strong views about them. The people it portrayed, Winston Churchill, Wallace Simpson, were long dead. Any arguments were limited to whether actors looked enough like their real-life counterparts. It was part posh soap opera, part history lesson. Emmys and Golden Globes were duly plundered like colonial treasures. Over its six seasons, The Crown has steadily caught up with modern times, and this has become a mounting problem. Suddenly, most of its characters are alive, vocal, and consulting their lawyers. Viewers now have vivid memories and their own takes. The closer the crown creeps to the present, the more historical distance is lost and the more contentious it becomes. There were early grumblings about speculative storylines, such as young Princess Margaret's wish to be queen or Prince Philip's refusal to kneel at his wife's coronation. The real Philip considered suing Netflix over the upsetting season two subplot where he was blamed for the 1937 death of his sister, Princess Cecily. The backlash had ramped up by the fourth season, described by The Guardian's Simon Jenkins as fake history, reality hijacked as propaganda and a cowardly abuse of artistic licence. The royals themselves stayed characteristically tight-lipped, but Charles's biographer, Jonathan Dimbleby, called it nonsense on stilts. There is an argument to say the crown is merely a scapegoat, taking the rap for a wider shift in attitudes. Due to intrusive press coverage, oversharing interviews and soul-bearing memoirs, we know more about the royals than ever. Is it Netflix displaying a lack of reverence or our entire contemporary culture? Does today's scandal-prone monarchy merit reverence anyway? Morgan was called callous for using the death of five-year-old Leonora Natchbull to precipitate an insinuated romance between her mother Penny and the Duke of Edinburgh. It was widely mocked as jarringly EastEnders-esque when Charles raged at his mother, If we were an ordinary family and social services came to visit, they would have thrown us into care and you into jail. Increasingly, the Crown's imagined dialogue sounds like generic scriptwriting rather than how these people might actually speak. Nowadays, coverage of the series is more about fact-checking it than considering its merits as screen entertainment. Many critics seem confused by the difference between drama and documentary. How dare Morgan lightly spice up events to make them more compelling? Why invent dialogue for the royals and not base the whole thing around dignified silence? Let's all march on Netflix waving pitchforks and cuddly Paddington bears. Unfortunately, the growing controversy coincided with the show's quality falling off its throne. Bi-seasonal cast changes haven't helped. The line of succession from Claire Foy to Olivia Colman to Imelda Staunton has delivered diminishing returns. Jonathan Price's harumphing incarnation of Prince Philip is a shadow of the nuanced figure portrayed by Matt Smith and Tobias Menzies. Hard-partying Princess Margaret, an MVP in early seasons when Vanessa Kirby was terrific and Helena Bonham Carter quietly heartbreaking, has been reduced to fleeting, fag-puffing cameos from a wasted Leslie Manville. Emma Corrin's empathic embodiment of teen Lady Di propelled them to stardom, and Elizabeth Debicki now shines, but many remain unconvinced by Dominic West as Charles. The final season drops in two parts, 
The first four episodes arrived this week, the last six follow on the 14th of December, and is dominated by Diana, Princess of Wales' untimely death. Netflix has been at pains to point out that the 1997 Paris tragedy is depicted delicately, assuring pearl-clutching pundits that the exact moment of crash impact won't be shown. Morgan told Variety, Oh God, we were never going to show the crash, never. Regardless, it is still being berated for poor taste and liberty-taking. The phrase, too soon, has been bandied about. So has the phrase, disaster porn, before the episodes were seen naturally. As Morgan said, all the criticism comes in anticipation of the show coming out. The minute it's out and people watch it, they instantly fall silent and probably feel rather stupid. He has a point, but it's wishful thinking on the fall silent part. It was deeply risky depicting the Pont de Lalma tunnel crash, which mercifully isn't seen, only heard. Bafflingly, it's framed by whimsical scenes of a whistling Parisian taking his dog for a moonlit walk. He's pleading with the pooch to do its business when a Mercedes hurtles past, tyres squeal and a sickening crunch is audible. It's a strange creative choice, to say the least. Appearances of Diana's ghost provide a further flashpoint guaranteed to send Middle England swivel-eyed with outrage. Morgan has denied that her posthumous cameos, talking gnomically to Charles and the Queen from beyond the grave like a willowy Yoda, are strictly spectral. I never imagined it as Diana's ghost in the traditional sense, he said. It was her continuing to live vividly in the minds of those she left behind. When she appears from beyond the grave, she genuinely announces herself with a camp, Ta-da! Still, the clangers keep coming. Foreshadowing of Diana's death is ham-fisted. Dodie Fired's ghost pops up, presumably as a gesture towards equal opportunities in the afterlife. While young Harry is gut-wrenchingly weepy about Mummy's death, Prince William turns into Kevin the teenager, angstily stomping around Balmoral listening to Radiohead. The suite of episodes closes with a moment so silly it's more likely to make viewers laugh than cry. In the run-up to this week's global release, Team Crown embarked on a preemptive, positive publicity drive in a bid to calm the inevitable blowback. Morgan seemed tetchy and defensive in interviews. No wonder. It all feels an awfully long way from the show's early highs – Foy's gong-garlanded performance, the Kenyan tour, Aberfan, the Great Fog, the Marburg Files, those sumptuous $15 million per episode production values. What began as a prestige period piece now resembles a trashy telemovie. The untold historical stories and clever parallel plots of earlier series have fallen by the wayside. Slow burn subtlety, has been swapped for splashy melodrama. In seven years, the crown has gone from a superior Downton Abbey to a gossipy guilty pleasure. Yet despite all the fact-v-fiction hand-wringing, it still tops Netflix's most viewed charts. In its home stretch, however, this lightning rod drama has royally lost the plot. We'll still watch it, but we won't admire it a sentence that might equally apply to our feelings about the House of Windsor itself. That was Royally Lost the Plot. How the Crown went from prestige drama to TV disaster by Michael Hogan. Read by Laura Shaven. 
If you want to do more deep diving into the royal family, do check out Today in Focus's miniseries, Cost of the Crown, an investigation into royal wealth and finances, wherever you get your podcasts. Next, with their boat sank nine miles from shore in shark-filled waters, Micah Honan clung to a bucket and struggled to keep his son, Julian, afloat. The worst moment, he tells Tim Jones, was when Julian began to lose consciousness. Read by William Vanderpoy. A week or so before Micah Honan took the fishing trip that would change his life, he drove past a building site and spotted a sign that read, Free. Nearby, on a patch of grass, were a hundred or so plastic buckets. Instinctively, Honan pulled over, grabbed eight or nine of them, and threw them in the back of his pickup truck. When I got home, I put a couple in my boat, he says. I thought to myself, these will come in handy one day. Honan is a keen fisherman. Well, that's rather understating it. He started fishing commercially when he was just 14, helping out in school holidays, before turning it into a 20-year career. He has fished on German trawlers, undergone long stints on factory ships in the North Atlantic, and has spent the past 11 years working off the shores of his home country, Australia. When he's not working, I spend my spare time fishing recreationally, he says. It must be in the blood. Honan says his son Julian caught his first fish before he could walk. He basically just pulled himself up on a rod that I'd left out at the beach and started reeling it in, he says. He has salt water in his veins. When Julian was small, whenever he wasn't in kindergarten, he would be by his father's side. Even when Honan was processing fish in a factory or refueling large commercial boats, Julian would be there looking on, chatting with his workmates. I don't want to say like a dog, says Honan with a smile, but wherever I went, he came with me. And so, when Honan embarked on a fishing trip with his friend Stephen Jaycock one day in June 2019, it was only natural that Julian would come along too. In fact, it was Julian, then age seven, who begged them to turn the trip into an overnight one so they could wake up at daybreak and fish. The perfect time to catch Snapper. The three of them left on their boat around lunchtime, sailing nine miles, 14 kilometres, out from the town of Caloundra, Queensland. After an enjoyable afternoon, Julian laid down his sleeping bag and went to sleep in the boat's half-cabin area at about 7pm. Jaycock was next to hit the sack. Honan says that One of them would usually stay awake to keep watch, but he was also feeling tired that evening. He spoke to Jaycock, and they agreed it would be fine. Jaycock was a light sleeper anyway, easily woken by disturbances. Honan dropped anchor, made sure everything was secure, and went to sleep next to his son. They didn't bother putting on life jackets, since it would have been too uncomfortable to sleep. The next thing Honan remembers is having wet feet. Instantly, I knew there was an issue, he says. He yelled at Jaycock to wake up. While they were sleeping, the anchor rope had wound itself around the boat's propeller and started to pull the vessel down. There was already a lot of water in the boat. 
Honan tried to start the engine to turn on the deck pump, but nothing happened, and he realised that the engine was already underwater. Honan called the Coast Guard. He couldn't have known this at the time, but back on dry land, the officer who answered his call was working his first shift in the radio room. This panicked emergency call at 1.30am from someone saying their boat had taken on water before the communication went dead would be nobody's idea of being eased into the role. Honan knew he had to get out of the boat quickly. He reached to grab Julian and seconds later began to inhale salt water. Within a minute of Honan waking up and calling the Coast Guard, the boat had capsized. Jaycock was thrown from the boat, but Honan and his son were now being dragged down by the boat's canopy. Honan quickly understood that he would have to swim down, holding Julian at a faster rate than the boat was sinking, in order to get out from underneath the soft top. When he emerged on the surface of the water, he saw the boat's lights fading as it sank. Apart from that, it was pitch black. I had to tread water with Julian on my arm, he says. Honan can't remember how long he did this for. A minute? Maybe two, he thinks. And then, only a metre away from where they floated, something popped up to the surface. Two of the buckets he'd absent-mindedly thrown into the boat before the trip. Honan grabbed one and Jaycock the other. Before Honan's phone died in the water, Jaycock managed to get a brief call out to the Australian police and told them they were in the water with no life jackets. With Honan's phone out of action, all they could do was hold on to the floating buckets and wait. I know how to swim, says Honan, but I was fully aware that I wouldn't be able to manage the nine miles back to shore. He tried to think rationally. He had reasons to be hopeful. They'd got a call out, so help must surely be coming. And rather than panicking, Julian was proving to be the most optimistic of the three. He was the brightest, says Honan proudly. He was the one who assured us that everything would be all right, that we could still see land and that help would be on its way. But help, if it was coming was taking its time. Hours passed. June means winter in Australia, and while the water was a merciful 21 degrees centigrade that night, it's not an ideal temperature to stay in for any length of time. Honan remembers that the sea was fairly calm, but points out, if you're under up to your shoulders, then even the smallest chop will crash over your head. They tried to turn themselves around so that the waves would hit them from behind. Honan knew there were sharks in the area, but as a seasoned fisher, this didn't bother him. There were bronze whalers and that sort of thing, but they don't really attack humans. We are not on their dinner list, he says. I never thought about that once. His main problem was holding his son tight to his hips the entire time. Of course my arms were aching, he says, but there wasn't really an option. I knew I would hold on to Julian until the rest of my life.
and that I had to keep hold of that bucket as well. The fortuitousness of the buckets bobbing up on the surface so close to them had been a lifeline, not just physically, but mentally too. They gave hone and reason to hope someone was looking out for them. I believe the Lord would have given us these buckets to calm us down and make us realise we had to hold on, he says. Is he a religious man? He pauses. I went to Bible studies as a child, he says. I wasn't really practising it. But out there, with a bucket in my left hand and my son in my right hand, of course I was praying. Around daybreak, Honan realised that his son had stopped talking as much. Soon after, he had pretty much stopped moving. He was losing consciousness. But Honan knew he was alive because he was still spitting out the water in his mouth whenever he was asked to. It's very hard to talk about, says Honan, with a deep exhale, when I ask him to relive these moments. Holding it together to tell this story is evidently not easy for him. Sometimes I wonder if our phone line has gone dead, but it's just Honan gathering himself. He didn't really have life in him, if you know what I mean, he says, his voice wavering. Shortly after dawn, Honan saw a police boat coming towards them. It was probably only about 400 metres away, when suddenly it veered off to the southeast and disappeared. Twenty minutes later, the Coast Guard did the same. Despite being so close, neither crews had seen them. They could hear a helicopter buzzing, but lost in the ocean holding two buckets, they were hard to spot. They carried on waiting, and Honan carried on clinging. Finally, a large vessel called the Nordic Star sounded its horn repeatedly. They had spotted us and alerted the water police, says Honan. Within moments, police were at their side with a rescue helicopter above. Honan remembers telling the diver to take Julian first, and his son being winched into the helicopter. He then recalls grabbing on a cargo net and being pulled on board a police boat. And that's the point at which he passed out. When he came round, he was in an ambulance on the way to hospital. Once there he was given some devastating news. The wind chill from the blades of the helicopter had sent Julian into shock. His heart had stopped. A paramedic on the helicopter had revived him, but he was now in a coma. The doctors could not say whether he would survive, but they believed that if he did, it was likely he would have severe brain damage. Julian would probably need to learn how to eat, talk and walk again. After going through so much, Honan barely knew how to respond to this news. It all felt very far away from me, so surreal, he says. After waiting for so long to be rescued, he now had the agonising wait to see if his son would pull through. Less than 24 hours later, he got his answer. Julian opened his eyes, looked at his dad and said, what am I doing here? Let's go fishing. Did everyone laugh? Absolutely, says Honan. The doctors couldn't believe it. Julian was trying to pull all the attachments from his nose and throat and asking if he could go home. 
Such was his son's frustration at being told he would be in hospital for the next few weeks, or maybe even months. Honan had to buy him a toy rod so he could pretend to fish from his hospital bed. In the end, Julian was home within the week. It was less than a month before he was out fishing again, on a friend's boat on the Brisbane River. Honan says that Julian doesn't seem to have been physically or mentally scarred by what happened that night. It has been more emotionally challenging for Honan. He has since met the paramedic who resuscitated his son in the helicopter and has been able to thank the Coast Guards too. He's been able to get a full grip on how lucky they were. Medical staff have told him that they each had a 5% chance of survival after what they had been through. The Coast Guard commander told him that it was extremely fortunate they hadn't been wearing life jackets as their buoyancy would have left them pressed up inside the roof of the sinking boat. Honan has a new boat now, but unlike his son, he is less comfortable with some aspects of his old life. I do have trouble staying overnight, he admits. It gives me a lot of anxiety. I know I would never, ever put the anchor back down again. And yet, he has been out overnight again largely because he has had no choice. Julian, now 11, is always begging him to do so. As soon as he comes to a body of water, he has to fish, says Honan, with a mixture of disbelief and pride. You can't stop that boy. That was My Boat Sank in the Dead of Night and I Had to Save My Seven-Year-Old Son by Tim Jones, read by William Vanderpoy. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this episode in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, air fryers, ski wear, hot tubs, kayaks. You never know what you'll find in the discount supermarkets. But you can be sure the keenly priced, limited time only products will lead to a scrum, says Shireen Kale. Read by Laura Shavin.
I am waiting outside an Aldi in South London at 6.45am. Through the window, I eye my prize. He glints at me from a basket placed tantalisingly close to the entrance. Kevin the Carrot, the limited edition soft toy released by Aldi once a year, is part of the discount supermarket's Christmas promotion. Such is the demand for Aldi's Kevin drop that the toys routinely sell on eBay for triple the retail price. This year, Kevin is golden, his belly straining against the metallic fabric like a wrestler's bispandex torso. I text Jane McGibbon Peverdy, a 39-year-old law student and Kevin collector. She's been waiting outside her local Aldi in Greenock since 4.30am. She sends me a photo of a steaming vacuum flask. In 2019, Peverdy witnessed a stampede for Kevin's. The following year, they had to get the police to the shop because a grown man tried to steal a Kevin out of the hands of a four-year-old, she says. My heart skitters like a baby deer on roller skates. Behind the glass, Kevin glitters from his squishy throne. One hour, 45 minutes, until opening time. Kevin Day comes but once a year, but the UK's love for the middle aisle at Aldi and its rival Lidl is year-round. Young and old, rich and poor, those with children and those without, all come in search of so-called special buys, unexpected items to enliven the weekly shop, on sale for a limited time, often as part of themed weeks. Kevin the Carrot, a badger knitting kit, a Lord of the Rings towel, an inflatable hot tub. We want to make sure we've got a little bit of something for everybody, says Louise Weiss, the promotions director at Little GB. Blockbuster middle aisle products of recent years include thermal underwear. It flew out. It was amazing. We sold 300,000 units in a week. Fluffy hoodies and air fryers. The team was telling me about air fryers before anyone knew about air fryers, Weiss says. But how did such items end up in Britain's supermarkets? Aldi pioneered the middle aisle, says Paul Stainton, a former buying director at the German company. The whole idea was to bring in general merchandise to attract customers with when-it's-gone-it's-gone propositions and, while they were there, to hopefully get them interested in the everyday core range. Stainton worked for Aldi from 1989 until 2020. The supermarket launched in the UK in 1990, little four years later. We started off by selling any general merchandise you could get hold of, he remembers. Strip mops were sitting next to 14-inch colour TVs. Over time, the offering grew. In the mid-noughties, ski wear was particularly popular. In 2017, a £399 inflatable hot tub flew out, Stainton remembers. Back-to-school promotions are a huge hit for obvious reasons. Lidl's uniform bundle costs just £5. Aldi and Lidl's middle aisle teams are slick operations. Weiss manages a team of about 50 buyers responsible for identifying future trends. We were the first people to market an affordable paddleboard, says Weiss. The buyers negotiate directly with manufacturers. Because Lidl and Aldi have nearly 2,000 stores in the UK between them and operate in dozens of countries, they are able to place enormous orders meaning they get the best prices from suppliers. But it's not only about trying to secure the lowest price possible. In the 1990s, we'd buy the cheapest drill we could, says Stainton. 
But as we started getting more experienced buyers and more strategy, we started to increase the quality of what we were selling. Weiss says that Lidl inspects its factories to ensure that workers aren't being exploited. This is something that anybody working in non-food retail needs to be so mindful of. Supply chains are extremely important to us. Aldi refers me to its company policy, which prohibits forced labour, discrimination and harassment, mandates compliance with local laws and protects workers' rights to unionise. But both retailers sail close to the wind when it comes to intellectual property laws. In the middle aisle, you will often find dupes, or what others might call knockoffs. Aldi sells a 1999 Everyways pan that is nearly identical to the £130 Always pan from our place, which can be used to fry, boil, steam and bake, and is popular among those tight on kitchen space. When you have one of the largest corporations in the world deliberately duping a product that is the innovation of a woman of colour founded business, I think that creates harm and makes it harder for the next entrepreneur to create innovation, says Our Place's co-founder Shaza Shahed. Shahed and her husband spent two years designing their multi-purpose pan before launching the company using their savings. I ask whether she has considered suing Aldi. There's a fundamental power imbalance here, she says. For us, our best defence is our innovation. When I put Shahed's criticisms to Aldi, Julie Ashfield, the managing director of buying, responds, We go to great lengths to ensure that all our exclusive Aldi brand products adhere to strict copyright guidelines. While the quality of our products matches that of more expensive brands, their designs and prices do not. But Shahed says that unlike Aldi's, her pan has a nesting spatula and steamer basket, plus a proprietary non-toxic coating. It's also oven-safe to a higher temperature, she says. I think this is capitalism at its worst, not best. Capitalism at its best would foster innovation, says Shahed. As for Lidl, Weiss says, We are very careful. We look out for market trends and we look to deliver our own quality and make sure that the integrity of our quality is there and we're landing that with our customers. If Aldi and Lidl are competing fiercely with small businesses, they are also competing fiercely with each other. Stainton tells me that Aldi and Lidl buyers jockey over the dates of their themed weeks. Take Wooden Toys, which went on sale last month. Aldi went first. Its standout product was a wooden toy kitchen, priced at $34.99, which sold out immediately. The week after, Lidl's $49.99 toy kitchen went on sale and sold out. I visited two Lidl stores on the day of its release in the hope of buying one for my son to no avail. It was already being resold on platforms such as Vinted for double the price. It's insane, says Jess Samra, 26, a civil servant from Sutton Coalfield. I didn't think it would be this much drama. Last month, she bought a trolley full of wooden toys from her local Aldi for her daughter. After posting about it on TikTok, she was inundated with vitriol. Pure greed, wrote one commenter. She feels the criticism is unfair and should be directed at the resellers. I understand people's anger, says Samra. It's not right for people to resell them. It's for parents who want to buy them for their children. It is scarcity that is driving Samra's critics to despair. If customers don't buy special products when they first see them, they will probably be gone the next time they visit the shop. Why not sell the more popular products for a longer period? 
Every customer who leaves disappointed is a missed opportunity for me, says Weiss. I feel it really personally. The reality is we're forecasting a lot of things in advance. What we don't want to do, what we hate, is any kind of waste. If products sell out quickly, Weiss's team will place larger orders the year after. We just want to make sure we aren't overwhelmed with stock, she says. This lean approach has made Aldi and Lidl behemoths. They pride themselves on undercutting the major supermarket chains on price. The middle aisle is where they claw back savings. General merchandise margins can be well over double the margins you can earn on food, says Stainton. He estimates that the middle aisle accounts for between 15 and 20% of Aldi's sales. For many years, retailers followed the approach of satisfying consumers, which meant just offering the products they were expecting on their shopping list, says Thomas Rudolph, a professor of marketing at the University of St. Gallen. Now, if you look at the typical purchasing situation in Aldi, consumers have a shopping list and are trawling the store, finding the products. After they finish their shopping list, the reward phase starts. Now I've saved so much money, let me get some inspiration and find something that makes me happy. That's what happens in the middle aisle. Emma Stars, 47, who works in PR and lives in Berry, agrees. Shopping can be boring. It jazzes up a grocery shop. Stars' favourite middle aisle purchase? Her sausage dog wire planter, bought for $5.99 from Aldi this year. Imagine a plant pot, but with chicken wire mesh shaped into a sausage dog with a hole in the back. She uses it to grow heather. This unpredictability is at the heart of the middle aisle's appeal. We're impulsive purchases, aren't we, says Stainton. I really think the British customer loves to mooch. The middle aisle is a break from routine, an opportunity to buy items that whisper the promise of a better, optimised self. One who turns out fresh loaves, bread baker, £50, little, or runs marathons, trainers, 14.99 Aldi. Shoppers are required to be impulsive. Buy now or forever lament the one that got away. Marie Lynn Davis, age 68, a retired teacher from Buckingham, often thinks about the chopping board with pull-out drawers she didn't buy from Aldi. It was a bit more than I wanted to pay, she says, but now I regret it. I look for it every time I'm there. Others, of course, do take the plunge, then regret it. I thought it was a good deal, says George Lancaster, age 33, a project manager from Bradford. I still stand by the fact that it was a good deal. Lancaster is referring to the kayak he bought from Aldi in 2021 for $39.99. He had only gone in for a few bits. He struggles to explain why he bought it. I guess I was a typical Yorkshireman and thought, that's a good deal. Two years on, Lancaster's kayak gathers dust in his garage. He has taken it on three holidays, but never used it. Someday I will, he says. In the middle of a climate emergency and a cost-of-living crisis, should we really be encouraging consumers to make frivolous purchases? Weiss ducks the question. What we will not compromise on is the quality of the products we're offering, she says. These are products that are designed to be used again and again. It is true that these items tend to hold up. Davis used a 1699 halogen oven from Aldi every day for seven years until it finally broke. That oven inspired such devotion that Davis is now the administrator of a popular Aldi Facebook group. Of late, it has become more fraught than usual, which Davis attributes in part to the cost-of-living crisis. 
People can't afford to go to places like Toys R Us, but they can pick up some decent presents for their kids when they're doing their weekly shopping and they don't have to use petrol going anywhere else. It is this, she says, that fuels the anger Samra experienced. They haven't got much money and want something decent for their kids and can't get it because someone is selling it for a profit. It's galling for them. We are speaking before Kevin Day, which this year fell on the 17th of November. When Kevin the Carrot came out in 2021, oh God, the arguments, says Davies. Fancy buying so many. Could you leave some for someone else? When the Aldi Christmas advert is released, Kevin the Carrot Facebook groups, there are several, light up like brandy-soaked pudding. Monday is here, countdown to Kevin Carrot Crush Thursday, wrote one poster. A store manager pleaded with people not to lose their heads. You'd be surprised how much abuse we get on Kevin Day. Which is how I come to find myself outside Aldi in the frigid gloom of a November morning. Pebbody has advised me to wrap up warm and watch out for queue jumpers. They edge in the front of the queue with a trolley. By 7.30am, I am still alone. I text Pebbody. She tells me there are 30 people in her queue. I'm ready to run, she says. At 7.50am, three other shoppers arrive. My heartbeat quickens. Could they be the queue jumpers Pebbody warned me about? I position myself stoutly in front of the entrance. The doors swish open at 8am. I launch myself through, not bothering to pick up a basket. I've calculated this would add five seconds and secure my gilded prize. Golden Kevin is mine! For good measure, I grab a 1999 human-sized Kevin. Satisfied, I glance around, expecting to see other shoppers ransacking the Kevin display. But they are browsing the fresh produce. Could it be that Kevin mania is draining away? Perhaps. But one thing is certain. The UK's love for the middle aisle shows no sign of slowing down. That was Middle Aisle Mayhem. How Aldi and Lidl changed British shoppers by Shireen Kale. Read by Laura Shaven. Finally, every week, Philippa Perry addresses a personal problem sent in by a reader in her Ask Philippa series. Here, she addresses the possibility that something in the past could be the trigger for one man's loneliness and isolation. Read by William Vanderpoy and Laura Shaven. Dear Philippa, I found myself listening to an interview with you on the radio the other day. I enjoyed hearing how you approach life and relate to people. It resonated with me. Sadly, my reason for writing is less positive. I'm a 70-year-old guy who, for a long time, has been single and living alone. I took early retirement and volunteered full-time for a charity for several years before walking out in disgust in 2019. I've never had that many close friends, and in the past five years I have been bizarrely abandoned or rejected by just about all the friends I thought I had, including school friends, plus my only brother. Lockdown was hell by myself, and I fell into spending most of my time playing solitaire on my laptop, watching TV and listening to the radio. Since lockdown, I've continued filling my days in the same way, and I almost never socialise with anyone. I've been isolated for the past four years, living life like a zombie, and I can't see how this will change. 
I've tried evening classes, speed dating, etc. in the past, and they have made no difference. I've never recovered from my grammar school forcing me to give up languages, which I loved and was topping and do science A-levels. Scraping a third-class degree in chemistry was just the start of living all my life as a lost soul. I feel I've wasted my life. I see no way out and fear succumbing to dementia, like my father, followed by a grisly end. I felt sad reading your letter, and I'm puzzled as to what may be going on for you. You seem to be falling out with everyone, yet you're nice to me and don't come over as a curmudgeon in your email. You walked out in disgust from the charity you'd volunteered at for a few years, and whatever terrible behaviour you witnessed there seems to have contributed to ruptures happening in nearly all your relationships, as though whatever disgusted you at the charity went on to sour your entire life somehow. Did it change the way you approach life and the people in it? I'm guessing it's more likely that whatever happened at the charity triggered feelings from your past that you may never have put into words. It sounds as though you've brooded for a long time about having to give up languages and being made to study science. When you were a child, you did not have full agency over your life. Other people made decisions for you. This lack of agency seems to have stuck somehow, so that your relationships and your life are still happening to you, as though you don't know how to make things happen for yourself. You love languages, and yet what is not listed in the ways you spend your time is reading in any language. We all need to discover what it is we love, and then go and do it. Not to do it for any future self, but to do it because it's enjoyable, interesting, absorbing, and makes the best of now. Maybe languages feel like a lost love, and to reignite that love may bring up sadness for the lost years. Don't fear this sadness. It's telling you what you need to do now. It's surprising how hard it can be to indulge ourselves in the things that matter most. Our wishes, our hopes and dreams make us feel vulnerable. We may unconsciously shy away from them, because there's a feeling somehow that if we fail at the things that matter most to us, we will then be truly lost. The courage we need to fail is the exact same courage that will help us succeed. And what you need to succeed at right now is to find something that makes your life meaningful today. It sounds so simple to tell you to do the thing you need to for a fulfilling life. Work out what you're feeling, from that figure out what it is that you want, and from there go for it. But we can bog ourselves down, stopping ourselves with the what-ifs that fuel that fear of failure. You mentioned dementia. Now, it's possible there have been some changes in your brain that led to all these fallings out. I'm not a medical doctor, but maybe you could get tested as a way of maybe making sense of what has happened. If that is the story, and I really hope it isn't, there will be resources for you so that you're not so alone with it. For example, ageuk.org.uk. We don't have control over all the circumstances of our lives, but what we do have some power over is our relationship with our own self and how we look after our bodies and over our internal dialogue and how we behave towards others. However difficult relationships are, we all need them. And so we need to learn how to cope with the differences we all have from each other. 
That was I'm So Lonely and So Isolated I Feel I'm Living Like a Zombie by Philippa Perry Read by William Vanderpoy and Laura Shaven If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece we've included details of a helpline you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com Enjoying this podcast? Then we think you might love The Guardian's new Long Reads magazine, which showcases some of The Guardian's best long-form journalism, covering everything from politics to technology, food to crime. Go to theguardian.com forward slash longreadmag to order a copy. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, Please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Laura Shaven and William Vanderpoy and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producers were Ellie Bury and Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.